Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to praying about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians pray better and think better about race and racism and do so in a way that's biblical, hopeful, and helpful. You can learn more and read more of our articles at youwepray.com. I'm the host, Isaac Adams. I'm here with the co-host, Austin Suter. Hello, Austin. Hello, Isaac. Good to be here. Good to have you, brother. And Austin, we have a former uh, boss of yours, a new friend to me, joining us on the show today. I'm really excited about it. Uh, We have our brother, Tom Terrence. Tom, good to have you. Thank you, Isaac. It's great to be with you. Um, I'll just I'll just say, Tom, that uh, I've done many interviews uh, for this uh, show, and I think you might be the most surprising of them, uh, given your history that we'll dive into. Uh, so you were the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute, uh, but long before that, uh, you were uh, involved with the Ku Klux Klan. And things have drastically changed. You're a Christian now. You've repented of that. You've fled that. Uh, we had lunch a few weeks ago, um, and that was equally one of the most surprising lunches I've ever had, but also one of the most encouraging, because you and I, and you, former bomb maker uh, and white supremacist, we sat there talking about how happy we are to be brothers, and we rejoiced in the power of the gospel. Uh, so that was a treat for me, uh, and something that encourages me mightily to this day. Uh, so Tom, let me just ask you right off the bat, how'd you come to be involved in clan activities in Mississippi? Well, this began in my uh, teens, um, which is where it's starting for a lot of people today, a lot of young people that are getting into this. Um, It started when I was about 17, and um, um, the desegregation of the public school I was attending uh, was really the um, um, triggering event, I suppose you'd say. and when that happened, I uh, was exposed to some racist, anti-Semitic literature, began to read it, uh, became indoctrinated, and um, it sort of went from there. The, um, the more I read and the more I talked with people who thought that way, the more I was influenced. Um, and so uh, it it produced a, a lot of hatred in my heart, and um, it's, it's really a terrible thing when that happens. Uh, hatred is the is the cancer of the soul, and it spreads, and that certainly spread in my life, and I became just really all wrapped up in this uh, far right ideology. By the way, far right is not the same thing as conservative Republican, um, but far right is like um, anti-Semitic, uh, racist, conspiratorial theories of history. Uh, uh, that that sort of thing. Um, and what what year was the desegregation of the school, Tom? It was 1963, early 60s. Okay. Well, before we go any further, I would just want to mention that if you want to hear the full story, which is incredible, Tom wrote a book last year called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. 
I reviewed it for our website. You can find links to it from our website. Tom, they can find it on Amazon, I'm assuming, elsewhere. Yes. So the full story is in there. And Tom, I just say, Isaac mentioned, we used to work at the same organization. Before we worked at the same organization, we worked in the same building. This was around 2012 or something like that. And I met you and got to know you before I knew all of this background. And when somebody mentioned it to me, I thought there had been a mix-up. This has to be a terrible mistake. Don't slander Tom like that. Uh, <laughs> this is not the kind man that we all know and love. So um, how, how did that change happen? How did you come to know the Lord and come out of this ideology? Well, um, I know a lot of people don't believe in miracles anymore, but um, uh, the this was uh, re really a miraculous intervention, I would say. Um, I, uh, I believed what I believed, and I had no interest in changing my opinions. But um, um, my activities in uh, the Klan had gotten me in prison with a 30-year sentence, and then I'd escaped and got five more, and I was sitting in a maximum security cell 24 hours a day all by myself and uh, had to begin to do something to keep from going crazier than I already was. And um, so that was reading. I would read all day long, and um, I... Probably don't need to go into all the details of it, but um, uh, after after reading a lot of racist and anti-Semitic literature, I uh, finally shifted uh, toward um, classical philosophy and uh, read Plato and Aristotle and Stoic writers, and um, and out of all of that came a belief that truth existed, it was objective, and it could be discovered. And also from Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so that put me on a search for truth. Now, it was not at all something that I thought would take me away from my current beliefs. Um, but it was just this, uh, you might call it a disinterested pursuit of truth. And um, so I continued reading and reading in political philosophy, uh, things like that. Um, but eventually I felt drawn to read the Gospels. And um, that's where things really changed dramatically. Um, uh, that's where I encountered uh, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> through the Word of God. Um, I had been raised in the church and um, very Bible-based church, uh, Southern Baptist Church down in Mobile, Alabama. And... Um, so I, I was no stranger to the Bible, but uh, I was certainly a stranger to the message of, of redemption uh, on a personal level. Even though I'd been baptized, 
age 13, made a profession of faith. But um, I had not been born again. and I, I mean, I, I had not repented of sin. There was no mention of a need to repent. It was uh, just believe that Jesus died for your sins. He was the Son of God, and um, you'd be forgiven, and then off uh, to, ba to be baptized. And so, um, but for me, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't realize I wasn't born again. I thought I was good to go. Ticket was punched. Um, I'd, I'd get into heaven when I died. So, and all of this racist stuff that I was doing, violence and all the rest, um, I, I did that under the banner of fighting for God and country. Sounds bizarre, I'm sure, although it's becoming um, uh, more common today. Um, so anyway, I, I was not, when I started reading the Gospels, I'll tell you all of that, that backstory, as it were, to say that I was not uh, seeking God. I was not seeking salvation. I didn't think I needed it, um, but I was seeking truth, whatever that meant. And um, and so uh, God had a different plan, and uh, it was a wonderful plan indeed. And as I was reading, I came to a place where my eyes began to be open to the meaning of the words and how they applied to me. And that brought me to a place of conviction of sin, the old-fashioned phrase, conviction of sin, where you, you are awakened to your sin and accountability to God, your own personal sins, not just sin in the, uh, the abstract. Uh, I mean, I, I acknowledged that when I was baptized at age 13, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I was part of the all, so... Therefore, I needed to be saved. Um, but it had absolutely no redemptive impact in my life until the Holy Spirit began to bring conviction and repentance. Um, very personal thing. And uh, this happened over a, a number of days. I came to a place of um, a really sorrow for my sin and uh, weeping and finally crying out, to Jesus for forgiveness and um, for him to take over my life. And uh, that's what happened. He, he answered. And I can't think of anybody less uh, worthy if you want to look at it that way, which is not a biblical way to look at it. But, uh, or maybe I should put it this way. Uh, I, w I would have been the least likely person in the state of Mississippi to have been... Uh, considered ready for salvation praise god uh to, encourage you here of your testimony brother i'm thankful that you were reading the scriptures and uh, your maximum security cell i want to go back to what you said you were believing some bizarre things and i want to talk about i want to ask you about um 
how you respond to some of those bizarre things, which you spell out in your book. Uh, so you were meeting up with a member of a far-right organization that was active in protesting desegregation. You said you guys would meet up once a week, and I wrote in the margins, I was like, goodness, this almost sounds like discipleship, just discipleship and hellish theology. Uh, and you all were listening together to Dr. Wesley Swift, who was an anti-Semitic and for- racist former Methodist minister from California uh, who preached white supremacy, uh, and his sermons influenced your beliefs and attitudes toward Jewish people more than anything else. Uh, Swift's racist theology, you write, called Christian identity would eventually give rise to the violent and dangerous Aryan nations movement, which is still active today. Uh, And Swift claims, so here's, I'll just read some of this theology, and I just want to know, now that you have been converted, how you respond to it. Swift claimed that he taught the true Christian religion, starting uh, with ideas of a little-known sect called British Israelism, uh, which contends white Northern Europeans are actually descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Uh, he created an anti-Semitic racist theology. Swift preached that those who, call, who are now called Jews are not true Israelites, but are descended from the ungodly line of Cain. Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, was said by Swift to be the offspring of the devil who seduced Eve. True Israelites are those who are descended from the godly line of Seth, the third son of Adam. Uh, Most of them were deported to Assyria when Israel's 10 northern tribes were taken captive in 722 BC. According to Swift, the pseudo-Jews today are an evil anti-Christian race, and key leaders among them have long been secretly conspiring to gain control of the world through communism and race mixing, both of which they used as tools. Black people, Swift taught, were subhuman, had no souls, and were being used by Jews to intermarry with whites to generate a mongrel race that would be more easily controlled. And I could keep reading, but I'll stop there. Uh, Tom, how do you react to that? Hearing it now. Well, it's, um, gosh, what can you say? It's, it's bizarre. And um, th- although there are people that believe that, it doesn't have any basis in reality. Um, those ideas are, uh, have long since been exploded. But, you know, when people come under the influence of these different ideologies, um, they they don't really um, they don't really seek out uh, other points of view, you know. It's just like uh, you, you get swept in, <clears throat> and um, you you buy the uh, the narrative, and then you begin to see reality through that lens, and um, and so. It's it's a it's happening all over the place, even as we speak here in America and Europe and other places. Um, but so so you so you would just just to double click on that, Tom, because some people would say that's crazy. No one believes that nowadays. You disagree with that? Oh, I do disagree with it because um, what many people may not be aware of is that um, there has been a resurgence of this far-right thinking. Um, we are seeing, if, if uh, listeners want to just do a little Google search, um, resurgence of anti-Semitic activity, racist um, activity here in the United States and in Europe as well. 
Uh, and this has been going on. It's, it's gathering momentum. Um, and so ideas like this are part of that mix. Um, now, that had something of a biblical um, basis to it. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it quite that way. I, it it, um, it appealed to certain scriptures mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to try to paint a picture, but and and so that that's happening still. But um, there is uh, another angle to this, for example, and um, just to, just to mention one, which is. Um, Nietzschean in its philosophy, and um, so that is the basis, and that is um, extremely anti-Christian, um, just uh, focusing on the will to power and uh, the ubermenschen, the, the um, superior race, superior man, uh, things like this, um, uh, and uh, going back to Norse uh, mythology, I mean, this is just some very strange things going on um, uh, that formulate some some of these racist and anti-Semitic views. Um, so it's it's just good to be aware that um, they have mm-hmm. diff- there are different families of, of this sort of stuff. But it's still out there. Oh, it's still out there and growing. Well, can I ask you about your thought process? Because you mentioned that you sort of had your narrative and you weren't really interested in entertaining other thoughts. On page 119 of your book, you mentioned James Burnham as a philosopher you were reading and how he defines an ideologue. Um, you quote him saying, an ideologue, one who thinks ideologically can't lose. He can't lose because his answer, his interpretation, and his attitudes have been determined in advance of the particular experience or observation. His thoughts are derived from ideology and are not subject to the facts. There is no possible argument, observation, or experiment that could disprove a firm ideological belief for the very simple reason that an ideologue will not accept any argument, observation, or experiment as constituting disproof. So you recognized when you read that, oh, that's me. I did. He nailed me. (laughs) (laughs) He nailed me. Um, yeah, and that is so applicable today because we have so much of this um, ideological thinking um, in, in today's world. And um, Can Christians be ideologues, Tom? Uh, well, define your terms, Austin. Are you talking about real Christians, born-again Christians, or nominal Christians? That's, that's a good question. I mean— I guess what I'm wondering is, is there a scenario where someone can get born again and still hold on to um, thoughts or convictions or some form of racism or something like this that they haven't, that God hasn't sanctified out of them yet? Oh, certainly. Um, I think that's uh, uh, fairly common. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we all come uh, to the um, the foot of the cross with a lot of baggage, and um, for some people, that's part of it, and that's what God has to work on. He has to 
help them to come uh, to see the sin, to be convicted of it, to repent. Um, it's essentially a matter of uh, loving your neighbor, loving your brother and sister, and being able to put together uh, how that applies to, you know, views that toward other people that would be um, what we would call racist. Uh, the, in fact, a scripture that really helped me a lot is in First John, uh, chapter four, and it's verse twenty. If anyone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And um, I read that verse early on and uh, was able to connect the dots there. Um, and uh, But to your question, um, sure, I mean, like I said, Everybody has their set of baggage, and when you grow up in a certain culture, subculture, um, you're going to have lots of stuff that's problematic to the gospel that you have to be set free from. So, um, and I guess there, so we would want to be careful to make the distinction that we all bring sin in um, that God has to sanctify out of us once we become converted. But there is a fundamental difference between someone um, being converted but having some racist tendencies versus someone committed to racist ideology that they try to baptize with a little bit of Bible. Right. That Those are two completely different animals. And so the latter there is, is something that we need to be concerned about and be alert to, that there are people today who are claiming to be Christians and um, endorsing uh, racist ideology and anti-Semitic uh, ideology. Uh, these are people that are sometimes called God and country Christians uh, who are not really, uh, they are in name only, you know, nominal, um, and they hold all kinds of views that are incompatible with Scripture. And, um, but they carry the name Christian. They, they call themselves or believe themselves to be Christian. Um, and so God gets the, uh, the credit for all of their uh, misdeeds and um, that sort of thing. And Tom, do you see a connection between God and country, nominal Christians, and white identity politics? And I'm asking you because you sent me an email about it, so I'd like to flesh that out. Do you see what is the connection there, and why does it matter for Christians to understand it, and as you said, to beware of it? Well, it's a very big question. Um, it is. Isaac, that could take and, five whole interviews. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's very complicated, <laughs> and I'm not an expert in political science, but um, what does seem to be the case based on a lot of research and then just plain observation of reality is that we have a problem here in, in America, a growing problem that has been called white identity politics uh, in the academy. And um, if, you, if you like, I can kind of sketch out very briefly sure, what, what this looks like. Okay, the United States 
1960 was 88.6% white and 10.1% black. That gives you 98.7% either black or white. And then you had a few Hispanics out in the Southwest. That's a very different world from what we're in today. So today, whites are 76% and change. Blacks, 13. Hispanics, 18. Asians, about 6. So people are looking around and seeing that things have changed. And when you look forward to uh, 20 years or 25 years from now, the all this is from the um, Census Bureau, by the way, and you can get it online. And, uh, it's easy to get on Google. So in 2045, the projections are that whites will be 49%, Hispanics 24 black 13 Asians about 8 Now, what's the purpose of going into all that? It's that um, white people, certainly up until 1960, but... Even now, at 76% of the population, they haven't really had to think about their whiteness. They have always been um, the majority dominant race, and they have uh, organized and structured society in the ways they thought best served their interests, uh, which any uh, group would do that has uh, control. And um, so that has not been on their radar. It, it hasn't been an issue. But now, with these changes that we're seeing, these population changes, percentages are shifting, and people, a certain percentage of people, are becoming more attuned to that and concerned about it. Um, sociologist Ashley, well, political scientist Ashley Jardina, uh, says in her research about 30 to 40 percent of white people are what she calls white identifiers. Uh, it's not racist. Uh, that's a different category. It's much smaller. I say racist according to the academic definition she uses. Uh, but she says this 30 to 40 percent of people are uh, noticing these changes and concerned about them, uh, primarily um, uh, not because they hate minorities or anything like that, but they're just thinking in terms of their best interest, you know, thinking, well, what's going to happen when we are no longer the majority? You know, are, are we going to lose power and influence, um, privilege, etc., etc.? Well, that, uh, that's kind of the general idea of, of uh, um, this uh, white identity politics that's rising up, and that is something that is um, being skillfully exploited uh, in the political realm, uh, those fears. And uh, this it's helpful to point this out because this kind of information will help give some perspective to what we're seeing in the, uh, the far right and the white nationalist uh, movements where they're using fear of what's called the white apocalypse, to draw people in. Uh, what do we mean by white apocalypse? Well, just what I was describing, whites are going to lose uh, control, 
and um, everything's going to fall apart, uh, essentially. Um, and so that narrative can be quite powerful. And um, what we will see is um, an, an emergence uh, and growing interest among some white people about preserving their privilege and, and their position in society. And arguments like, um, uh, well, other minorities have, have their uh, interest groups. Uh, shouldn't white people have theirs? Um, National Association for White People that look out for the interests of whites. And uh, you can imagine where that can go, many different directions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But um, I think we'll hear more and more uh, talk about um, white people built America, and uh, we know how to run it, and we've got to keep in charge for things to keep going well. Um, white people built Western civilization, you know, things like that, which have some factual basis to them and can be used by skillful propagandists to draw in people who are not necessarily racist uh, but susceptible to this, uh, this kind of um, uh, fear-mongering. Uh, so anyway, um, you have people who are, as I was saying, kind of God and country Christians who are very susceptible to that kind of thinking. And they, they are folks who, and you can see this in the research, they would identify, a lot of those people would identify themselves as evangelicals um, because that word now is, is being used a lot for conservative Christians. Uh, but in terms of what a, an evangelical really is, what the definition of the word is, they're not an evangelical at all. Um, they may on rare occasions go to church, but... Um, you know, in terms of any kind of involvement in the uh, practices of um, Christian life, there's just little to to no uh, activity uh, in the in those areas. So, um, but they are, you know, this, this Christianity in their minds is part of being an American. Uh, looking back, it's a kind of nostalgic thing, you know. Mm. So you look back and, you know, I'm a Christian American. Well, to be an American is, is to be a Christian. In the old days, you know, that was the, the kind of um, the view that people had, that, you know, Americans are Christians. And, and so that's part of the God and country thing. Um, mm. but that certainly confuses everything, right? Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, I mean, because you mentioned just sort of the everyday nature of, of some of this. Can you talk about how that was for you back in the days of Klan involvement? Uh, you mentioned in your book that one of your co-conspirators, their spouse didn't know what they were up to. And that when you got arrested, an attorney who was involved with the Klan was in touch with you. So was this something that just everyday people were involved with this kind of extremism? Well, um, <clears throat> I suppose I would say that um, people that, that I was aware of that were in extreme, extreme groups like the Klan, they had a normal, uh, more or less normal kind of existence in, in the sense that they had jobs they went to and you know they were carrying on life like uh, other people, except they had these, these views and um, some were very passionate about about their uh, their views, 
um, but they weren't some kind of uh, group that was um, divorced from the daily realities of life in uh, society. You, if you ran into them and you got to talking with them, well, you'd think, well, they've got some ideas that are pretty far out, but, you know, they live in the community, they send their kids to school, they work at their jobs, uh, that sort of thing. I think that's what was probably so alarming about some of the demonstrations we've seen in the last few years is that it, it yeah. seemed like people came out came out of the woodwork. And yeah. one wonders where all these people came from, but it's probably, like you're saying, still the case today. Well, one thing that's helpful, I think, um, in trying to make sense of all this is um, – is to realize that when the Civil Rights Act was passed back in the 60s, there was a change of mood in America. And so, not to get into too much detail about that, but simply to say that um, it was no longer considered uh, appropriate to use certain language in describing black people, for example, or to express certain sentiments uh, about race relations. And um, so some people cleaned up their language, but that didn't necessarily mean a change of heart. Mm, mm, mm. It just meant that things went underground, so to speak. People figured out, oh, we see which way the wind's blowing. We better keep, uh, keep our heads down here and uh, keep our opinions to ourselves and a few like-minded friends. And um, so, you know, the idea that somehow after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, white people suddenly changed, well, I'm afraid that's not entirely accurate. Now, there is the truth that a number of white people became aware in ways they had not been before of um, the evils of... Um, uh, racism and the system that was currently it had long been in uh, in place and um, and developed more of a conscience about uh, the treatment of uh, black people and so certainly that was a good thing uh, it it certainly brought positive change in in uh, many people but not everybody. And the people that held what you would say pretty strong uh, racial views before, that didn't change their minds at all. Uh, they just cleaned up their language a little bit. So what you have now is that um, in the last few years, uh, it has uh, the mood has changed again, shall we say. And it's becoming considered more acceptable to um, express some of these racist sentiments. I mean, there's plenty of research. I mean, I'm a, I'm a kind of um, research wonk. <laughs> I, well, like, no, I think that's good. To, I mean, because a lot of it's easy to talk about these things and not do the research. That's part of what makes Twitter so dangerous. And I'm just, I'm frankly just enjoying sitting here listening to the research that you've done um, profit and help and sharpen me, if, me if, too. If, even if it frightens me to some degree. Um, so you've made, you've made this, this astute observation that just because, just because frankly, people got more polite does not mean there was any change of actual heart. 
in that sense, racism, it, it morphed or burrowed. But praise God, there was a change in your heart like we heard about earlier. So page page 29 of your book, you talk about uh, an FBI agent, Frank, uh, and, his, and his ministry to you. He had seen how your radical beliefs and behaviors had warped your view of God. Uh, Concerned about your spiritual condition, he asked his pastor at uh, First Baptist Church in Meridian to visit you. And you saw nothing wrong with your views, and you were suspicious of the pastor's motives. Uh, Nothing you talked about changed your beliefs. However, you didn't know at the time, but Frank's wife and the women in her prayer group were praying earnestly for you to be saved. Uh, so your bio says you've been given to prayer, you you love prayer. So in light of all that we've discussed, uh, Tom, can you talk about the power of prayer? Well, that's really the beginning, uh, really at the roots of my conversion. Um, this group of women that met weekly uh, to do Bible study, uh, began to pray for me every week that I would be converted. Um, after after this event uh, incident happened there in Meridian, this attempted bombing and the shootout and all of that sort of thing. Um, so they prayed every week for two years that God would save me. And I was absolutely, without any doubt, considered the most unlikely person in the state of Mississippi to ever be saved uh, at that point. Um, But they thought, you know, they read the Bible and um, they just believed it. Mm. And they thought, well, God can do miracles. He can do anything. Mm. And uh, so we'll pray for him to save this guy and um, glorify himself. And so that's what they did. Uh, they, these weren't highly sophisticated uh, theological people. These were just basic, ordinary, born-again Christians who were really committed to God, wholeheartedly committed to God, and read the Bible. <laughs> so um, for two God. years, two years they prayed. Wow. And that was the, the preparation, I think. Um, the Holy Spirit was working over that period of time to guide me into that place where he finally met me and um, and then opened my heart and mind to truth. Um, and so that has stayed with me. I, I didn't know anything about them praying for a good while after I met the Lord, but um, uh, I did have the good fortune of um, reading some Christian literature there in my cell and um, remember an article that talked about how the people who really had made the most impact for God and uh, and the world were people who devoted themselves to prayer. It's at that point, I, w- I mean, I want to just read uh, from your conclusion, page 187 of your book, uh, because I think it'll transition us well to prayer. Um, you say how Christian respond to the to these issues, the issues we've been discussing on this interview, has major implications for the wider world and for the church. To respond properly, we must resist fear, anger, confusion, and hopelessness, and instead look to God in hope, because nothing is impossible with Him, as you were just saying. And you say we must cry out to Him in faith, 
to do great and mighty things in our day, just as he has done in difficult times in the past. Uh, Some may wonder why I say that racial, ethnic, and political divisions are serious discipleship issues for the church. It's because these issues and a good many others are actually symptoms of a deeper underlying problem in our personal and corporate lives as believers. That problem is the failure to live as Jesus calls us to live under his total lordship over our lives. Unless we deal with this foundational issue and and its application to these concerns, we will continue to go around in circles. And Tom, I just thought that was a wonderful way uh, to end and just you hit the nail on the head and then you hit it again. And I'm so glad. Uh, so I want to I want to transition us to cry out to God and to do what you said, Tom. So I'd ask and invite you to pray for us. And then, Austin, you can pray for us. And then I will close us in prayer, despite me wanting to sit here and listen to research for another two hours. Does that sound all right? Sounds great to me. All right. Well, Tom, brother, why don't you open us? Austin, you pray, and then I'll pray. Father in heaven, we lift our hearts to you to give you thanks and praise for your amazing, wonderful grace in our lives. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to rescue us from our sins. And Lord, you've given us your spirit to deliver us from their power and control in our lives. So we bless your name, Lord, and for your great faithfulness and steadfast love. And Lord, we think about these issues we've been discussing, and we know that nothing is too big for you. And we do pray, Lord, that in our day you would move with great power to go to the root of these things. Lord, revive and reform your church, we pray, Lord. We pray that you will move in such a way that um, your people are brought to a new sense of of, uh, your majesty and your glory, your holiness, and brought to a new place of repentance and wholehearted surrender to you. And we pray that your people will begin to live lives that reflect the great commandment to love you with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and love our neighbors, ourselves. Just help us to love you supremely, O Lord, and to, to manifest that in the love that we have for our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, even our enemies, Lord, that Uh, We will demonstrate a love that crosses all the barriers and boundaries that separate and divide people in this world, race and ethnicity and um, social status and all the the long list of those things that divide us, Lord. We will show a gospel that's more powerful than all of that. We pray, O God, that you will do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the miracle that is conversion. We thank you that you worked that in Tom's life when it seemed so unlikely as to almost be impossible. We thank you for the many faithful saints who prayed for that to happen. And Lord, we pray for that same thing to happen for those trapped in this satanic ideology even today. We pray that you would save people out of it. 
We pray for Christians who have been born again, but who still hold on to racist ideas, who have blind spots and sins, as we all do. We pray that you would purify your people, that you would sanctify us, that increasingly we would be an obedient people who are unified as Christ prayed for in the garden. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father, we think of uh, your son and his ministry upon this earth, Lord. We think of uh, the rich uh, young man who came and spoke to him, who loved his treasures more than uh, the Savior that stood before him. Uh, Father, uh, we think of how he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Lord, we know your disciples were greatly astonished at this saying. They said, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, with you, all things are possible, as our brother Tom has said. Uh, Father, it's an, I consider it no light thing to, to be on this, this interview with this brother uh, who would have hated me decades ago. And now we say you're not as enemies, but as brothers and as sons of yours. Lord, your grace is overwhelming. And you heard you heard the prayer of those sisters at First Baptist, and you answered them. Father, forgive us for our unbelief that you might answer our prayers. For doubting that you are more willing to give than we are to receive. So God, we praise you. Uh, for your grace and it's going forward. We know that a thousand days with you are but as a night, Lord, that you are not slow to fulfill your promises. And so despite us feeling any kind of slowness, Lord, we look to you in hope. Uh, Lord, we do ask that you would peel us back from any level of identity politics that we baptize uh, with with Christian language or that we at least appeal to the scriptures to. Lord, we know that Satan loves twisting the scriptures in truth. Lord, help us to have a godly, not a satanic handling of the scriptures, especially on these difficult matters. Father, we thank you for Tom's story. We pray that you'd repeat it a thousand times over. And we pray to you because you are the only one who can do that. With us, this is impossible. With you, all things are possible. And we pray this with hope in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us, brother. Uh, friends, thank you so much for joining us. Austin mentioned it earlier. Uh, he covered for me nicely because I forgot to mention the book. Uh, yeah, he did. But Consume by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Austin, Tom, this book is so good uh, that Austin has actually written two articles on our website about it uh, in praise of God saving racists. And then he's got a book review of it as well. Um, so, friends, thank you for coming through. You can read more of our articles at youwepray.com. That's U W pray.com and Tom, thank you so much for being here with us, brother. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to us having lunch and hanging out again. Uh, that's all we've got for now. Come back uh, for more on season five. Grace and peace. <laughs>